We're getting close to the end of the study and the end. And uh, the closer you get, the better it gets um, if you're a Christ follower. And so the closer I get to the end of the book of Revelation, by the way, it's not Revelations, it's uh, Revelation, just like Walmarts, not called Walmarts, called Walmart. Um, just a personal, you know, now you know one of my pet peeves. I'm going to Walmarts. Well, I guess you're visiting a few of them today then. <laughs> um, I better quit right now. <laughs> filter, filter, filter. <laughs> the book of Revelation is uh, an amazing story of God's plan um, for the earth and how it completes his plan for us. And, and then it ushers us into an eternity those of us who know Jesus Christ in the eternity of heaven. And next week, by the way, you don't want to miss out on, we're going to talk about the realities of heaven. Like I've had proposed many times, people ask me, what are we going to do in heaven? Like, is it, is it just bowing down and worshiping God? Yes, we'll spend a large part of our time on our faces with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we rightly should. And uh, we can do that now too. Uh, but we're going to talk about responsibilities and how we use our gifts and talents but last week we ended at the end of the tribulation period. And we looked at the earth splitting up and dividing into three pieces. And it was just God's wrath, his fury was poured out on mankind. And it was total, total destruction, total devastation. And it's like God finally unleashed all this vengeance that he's been holding on to for that moment. And he released it. So today... We are going to jump into fast forward to a moment in time on the timeline that, that I believe um, we're becoming more familiar with. Um, and we know from our study, and I've tried to defend why I believe this, that the rapture occurs here. And then the seven-year tribulation period that we looked at. And we know that that was divided into two halves, the first half and the second half is called the Great Tribulation. And then the next thing on the timeline that we have is the thousand-year millennial reign. And we know that that's on the horizon. And then we know the last event that Scripture records and where we'll spend eternity is the eternal state, which is either heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, or hell for eternity. And like I've shared and expressed on a couple occasions, I, I'm not an annihilist. I believe that annihilation view that says once you die as an unsaved person, you're done. Um, there's just so many passages in Scripture that refute that, even just forever and ever, torment it day and night forever and ever. So last week, we got to the near end of the tribulation period. The next thing on the timeline that we're aware of from Scripture is called the second coming of Christ. And this is... A lot happens right at the end of this tribulation period before the millennial reign actually ushers in. You have the second coming of Christ, which is an important event. You have this wedding supper that takes place. A wedding supper that takes place. And you have the battle of Armageddon. A lot takes place in this moment that we're going to talk about today. I also, once again, just want to... We won't spend a whole bunch of time, but there's a couple of judgments that one judgment takes place right here at the end of this called the, 
the, the sheep and the goats judgment, and that's for the sheep are the tribulation saints that made it through, and the goats referred to in Matthew 25, 31 to 46 are referenced to the unsaved that came out of the tribulation period, and they'll be thrown, um, obviously, heaven or hell. Or, and so just as a reminder, that takes place. But we're going to read what takes place next on the timeline, which is pretty, pretty significant. And we also know, and we're going to see it today, that at the beginning of this thousand-year reign, Satan is bound. Satan is chained. And you'll see that today. We'll take a look at that. And then we'll also see that at the end of this tribulation or this millennial reign, Satan is loosed. And he tries to come out one more time to battle at war with God himself. But on the horizon today, we're going to look at what Matthew 24 refers to and other passages in Zechariah 14 as another passage, and then we're going to look at Revelation. But the next thing on the timeline is a very significant thing um, because we get to be part of this. In fact, even this week as I was studying this, man, I just kept picturing this moment. Finally, it's happening, and and the, the bride of Christ gets to be part of it. It's pretty exciting. Let's jump in. Grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. If you need a Bible, we have uh, some Bibles, and uh, we'll put one in your hand. Just hold your hand up. But turn to Revelation, chapter 19, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 6. While you're turning there, there's a word that appears four times in the first six verses of Revelation 19. It's the word hallelujah. In fact, it's the only time in the New Testament that that word appears, hallelujah, and it appears in the Old Testament, but it doesn't appear at all in any other book in the New Testament. It only occurs here, and it occurs four times. The word hallelujah means praise the Lord. So John is about to take us to a picture, a vision that he has, and he has seen this thing, this celebration, this joyful moment in heaven. So picture as you read this today, your seeing what John is seeing, and he's trying to best describe as possible this joyful celebration. And he uses the word hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. It's not any other book in the New Testament except here. So stand with me, and you'll see these four times that word occurs. But turn to Revelation 19. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Ready? Read. After I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. You may have a seat. It is obvious that there's been a transition The fall of Babylon, the false religion has been crushed. And now John looks to heaven 
and he sees this joyful celebration. We see angels and the 24 elders, and by the way, will be part of this celebration, those of us who have been raptured, those of us who have a relationship with Christ, New Testament saints, will be part of the celebration. And so there's this beautiful picture in heaven. And John's trying to describe it, and he uses a word four times that isn't recorded in any other New Testament book, trying to express in a great way, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So we give this snapshot of heaven And it's the bride, we are the bride, waiting for this moment. We've been watching the tribulation period, those of us who are raptured out. And now it's our chance to come back. Now it's our chance to join in the forces of Jesus Christ and to come back and wage war on the evil one. Then John moves on. Look at verse 7. He says this, let us rejoice and be what? And give him what? For the wedding of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Let me pause there a second. In your own study, it'd be good for you to go back to 1 Corinthians 3. And there's a reference to a fire test that will take place for us at the Bema Seat judgment that occurs after the rapture, you and I, who are Christ followers, will go to the Bema Seat, which is where we stand and we're judged for our good works. Christians are judged for their good works. 1 Corinthians 3 gives a picture of, it's a fire test. And so all the works that we've ever done run through this fire test. And whatever holds true, whatever was done with a proper motive, whatever was done to glorify God, whatever was done, any kind of good deed, it is refined, it's burned. And whatever is left, that's what we take to God. That's what we lay before him and say, God, I did this for you. And in that moment, there will be crowns that will be given to us. And then in turn, we give them back to God and say, God, I did this for you. But there's a picture in 1 Corinthians 3, basically, that some, it says that, that some make it as though they were escaping through the flames. In other words, some of us will make it based upon our salvation in Christ, but there weren't many fruits, many righteous acts. Now, why is that important? Well, primarily it's important because we do them to raise glory to Jesus Christ and to point others to him. We don't do them so that we get crowns. We do them so we say, God, I love you. I am so enamored by your presence and your holiness and your righteousness that I want to live out my life. That's why we do them. Now, God takes those righteous acts that, he has, that we have done. He always rewards obedience. Now, this is very important. Because when we get to heaven, we'll see next week, even during the millennial reign, I believe that's during that time where that begins to play out. He gives different power, position, and privileges. Just look at Luke 16 and Luke 17. Based upon how we lived, our righteous acts put us in different positions, power, and privileges when we live with him in the millennium and in heaven. Next week, we'll talk more about that. But this passage says that we're dressed in fine linen. 
Ephesians 5.27 said we, should, we are a radiant bride. We, we are with, without stain or blemish. The condition only exists after the judgment seat of Christ when we are clothed in Christ and there's no sin. So there's this picture looking. We are dressed in fine linen based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a beautiful picture. Then it says this in verse 9. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are what? Invited to the wedding supper of the what? And he added, it's interesting, this little addition. These are the true words of God for emphasis, because we know all the the Bible is the true words and errant and infallible. Then he says this, at this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it's the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. The supper of the Lamb. Look again at verse 9. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. If you come to our communion services, and I invite you to do so, come to Grace Community's Threefold Communion, we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. We have a feast. We eat together. It's an ordinance that reminds us of this future thing, this wedding supper of the Lamb that takes place. Now, I don't know what you have thought about this, but, you know, plenty of times I've read this and I had people ask me, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Don't answer this out loud, but how would you answer that question? If someone asks you who's invited to this wedding supper, what would you say? And how would you defend that? Now, let's, let's go into what a real wedding looks like today. Yesterday, I performed a wedding here at Grace, a young couple, and I was part of the ceremony, and, and there was a bride, and there was a groom. We are the bride, metaphorically, to the groom, Jesus Christ. So many people read this and say, boy, I'm glad I'm invited to the wedding supper. And I want to say, if you're a Christ follower, you're not invited. You do the inviting. (laughs) I mean, how often does a bride and a groom, how often are they the invited part? No, you send out invitations to other people to be there. You're not the invited people. They come for your wedding. So who is that a reference to then? If we are the bride and he is the groom, then who gets invited to this wedding? Now, let me just give you some really important theology. In the New Testament, from the time of Christ's resurrection to his ascension in heaven, when he went back to be with God, a period of time began called the church age. The church age is us. We as New Testament believers are called the church. We are referred to as the bride of Christ. And so we are the bride. Prior to that time, prior to Christ being resurrected out of the tomb and going to heaven, were other followers of God called Old Testament saints, those who trusted God and believed in the the Messiah to come. So, at this wedding supper, we are the bride. The guests are Old Testament saints. By no means am I trying to infer that they're inferior. 
But this is the chance for the, the church, the bride, to have her moment with Jesus Christ. So wrap your mind around that. Every believing man and woman from Adam to the resurrection of Jesus will be invited. Now picture, if you can, we've read scripture. We've watched what's taken place during the seven years of tribulation. We know what's next on the horizon. Now you're going to this wedding feast We know what is about to happen. Imagine the conversation that you have as you're at this wedding supper. By the way, imagine this. Imagine whoever is the DJ in heaven introducing the bride. Imagine how long that's going to take. From China, from Lithuania, from America. Just, and we all come running in. Just imagine how long that will take. And time will be different than what it is now. But, but in this moment of time... Imagine conversation around the wedding table. And imagine just the bride and the groom. The groom is here. There's the bride. We have our table. Now, have you ever wrapped your mind around this? And I've tried to many, many times. How in the world will we ever be able to talk to the groom when there's so many bride there? How will we, like, like, do we look way down the table and say, hey, Jesus, you got a minute? How will we communicate? I mean, this is just how my mind thinks. How, how will we communicate? And then I began to unplug and began to think about who Jesus Christ is. We know that our God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. In other words, he knows everything that you're thinking right now. He knows everything I'm about to say. He can think and know what everyone is thinking at the same time. Like right now, just, okay, for instance... Just think something that's blue. Just, okay? Now, on a count of three, I want you to say what you thought was blue. Ready? Some of you didn't think anything. You just checked out. So I'm giving you another chance. Okay, try again. Think of something that's blue. Something that's blue. On a count of three, I'm going to ask you to speak out that blue thing. One, two, three. Someone said crayons. <laughs> there was really like a huff over here too. I don't know what you said, but man, you were trying to get your point across. <laughs> now, Jesus is omniscient. Now, here's, here's, here's the God that we serve and love. He knew what you were thinking. He knew what you were going to think. He knew that some of you didn't think the first time I asked you to think. He knew what you were going to say before you said it. And he knew what everyone said when we said it. He's omniscient. Now, that's just us. On the other side of us is the link. And across the world on the internet are other people. And all around the world are other followers of Christ and everybody else that lives. He can comprehend all those thoughts at once. Now, not only is he omniscient, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, but he's omnipresent, which means Jesus can be everywhere at one time. As much as he is right here and he can witness what is taking place, he is here as much as he is everywhere. Now, he is everywhere at the same time. So let me back this up for a second. By the way, this is incredible. That's the guy we love and serve. Now, back that up a little bit and think about this. 
Here's what I think might happen, and my puny brain can't even wrap my mind around this. When we're at this wedding supper of the Lamb, somehow God will be able to talk to you and to you and to you and to you and to me all at the same time and be able to comprehend conversation because he's everywhere all at one time. He's, he's omnipresent. He's, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here. And we're like, I'm just here. We're not omnipresent. God is able to be everywhere at once, having conversation after conversation after conversation. Woo! That's amazing, isn't it? So, by the way, imagine our conversations. You know, I, maybe I'm just, maybe because I know what's coming next, and I think this is probably what I'll be thinking, but the next thing on the charts of eschatology is a pretty awesome thing. In fact, let's read it. Revelation chapter 19, look at verse 11. John said, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a what? Whose rider is called what? And what? With justice he judges and wages war. Okay, we're at this, we're at this reception and generally speaking, should be the next step. The next thing after a wedding reception for the bride and the groom is their what? Honeymoon. So, unless you got a really, really tight groom. And, uh, dude, take time away and, and spend time with your bride. Honeymoon is the next thing. And the next picture we have of John, he's looking up. And it's as if this door is flung open and they're standing. He gives this picture. Look again, the groom standing open. There before him was a white horde whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. You know what our honeymoon trip is going to be? <laughs> oh man, this is good. Jesus is standing there, and he looks at us, who are all the followers who have trusted him. And I'm going to show you, we're going to be behind him. And he says, Hey, before we spend the next thousand years of honeymoon, a time of peace, which is amazing too. Thousand years of peace with our, the bride and the groom. Before we do that, there's one little stop I want to make. The next trip, the honeymoon trip, is he's saying, I want to go back to earth and take care of something. I want to go back and you're coming with me, bride. And when we go back, we're going to have this little battle, this little skirmish. And you get to be part of that. So before you celebrate the honeymoon, there's this little diversion that we need to take care of. Are you ready for that? Oh, man, are we going to be ready for that? There's this moment in time in the future where you and I are going to rally behind the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and we're going to be saddled up behind him. And we're going back for this battle called the Battle Almighty, the Battle of Armageddon. Then John gives us a picture of what we call Armageddon. By the way, 
I can't wait. All the havoc and all the pain and all the suffering that the enemy has caused, all the evil and injustice and injustices in our world, this will be a redeemed, powerful, overcoming, dressed in white linen group. And leading us is the groom, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. By the way, this is just, I know I probably won't even think these thoughts, but my human mind today, still on this side, I have a human mind. Listen to me. I'm racing you to the front of the lines. <laughs> like, you ready, Jesus? <laughs> it's like, all those years of running is going to come into play. <laughs> it's my chance. <laughs> I'm coming to the front. And by the way, I, just, I was thinking about this this week. You know, while we're seated at this, you know, this wedding supper of the Lamb, sure, I'll be so enamored with Christ. But before we get there, I'm going to the horse stables. And I'm taking a peek, and I'm seeing where the fastest, biggest, strongest snot coming from its mouth. And just nostril, just. I want to mount him because I want to come back as a victorious bride of Christ, conquering evil. Woo, I can't wait for that moment. Look at Revelation chapter 16. Meanwhile, there's this other battle going on earth. Look at Revelation 16. We looked at it last week. It says the sixth angel, chapter 16 and verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole land, of world, to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty, Armageddon. Now look at verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called what? Armageddon. Now, let me just give you a, a picture of what's taking place here. Jesus is mounting up his troops. Jesus has the bride ready to go. But meanwhile, down on earth, there's this area called the Euphrates River. I never get A's in art, but just help me out here. Euphrates River. And it says that it's dried up. Now, you might say, well, so what? No, this is important. Because the Antichrist, at this time, right before we come, is waging war against Israel. He thinks that he has this buffer zone called the Euphrates River. It's like no one can get to him. But the text tells us in Revelation 16 that it dries up. And we also know from earlier chapters in Revelation 6 and 7 that this battle army is 200 million people. It's dried up. And now they're coming in and they're beginning to fill up this area called the Euphrates River. So picture the Antichrist gathering his troops. He wants to conquer and win on earth, and he's battling. This is taking place. His mind is focused on this moment. It's pretty intense moment on planet earth. And then there's this little diversion that comes from over here, from heaven. 
And this little diversion has the king of kings, Jesus, and has his bride. And he's concentrating on Israel. And out of nowhere comes... Us. And the text says, might not sound like that, but I think it is. It's coming. And we're coming ready to attack this another diversion. And the Lamb of God appears before his bride with him and in another form. And it's us. And look what happens in Revelation chapter 19. Verse 14. The armies of heaven were following him. Grace Community Church, to those of you who know Jesus Christ, that's us. So, you know, you could put, I'm following him. Riding on a white horse, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. By the way, when's the last time you've ever saw any infantry, any military dress in white? Doesn't make, why would they dress in white? I mean, why wouldn't you put like camouflage on so they can't see and so it doesn't show the dirt? Why in the world would, would you dress in white? I mean, that shows dirt. Obviously, it's because at the, the Bema seat, we were clothed with his righteousness. But how can we be dressed in white? Here's, let me tell you what that means. It means we're not getting dirty. <laughs> Jesus is leading the way. And the text says, out of his mouth is the sword, is the word of God. And he is ready to wipe him out. And there's blood dripping on his, his robe because he is massacring. And we're behind. And all he has to do is speak the word of God and evil is gone. And we are front row seats to that. Look at this. Look, look at this with me. Coming out of his mouth, verse 15, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, it is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me just say it this way. This isn't flannel graph, Jesus. This isn't like... um, Christmas pageant Jesus. This isn't bobblehead Jesus. This is not a way in the manger Jesus. But this is a savior dripping with blood, with fury and wrath to wipe out mankind that never trusted him and the evil one. And the armies of heaven are right behind him. Personal preference, I've shared this with God many times. God, can you make these steel horses? And those of you who don't know what that means, that's a motorcycle. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> Just personal preference, God. And if you can make it Harley Davidson, that'd make it even better. <laughs> Matthew chapter 24. You can ride the Honda, I'll ride the Harley Wayne. Matthew chapter 24. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Here's a picture of this second coming of Christ. Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 27 through 31. Jesus said these words in the book of Matthew. Matthew 24, verse 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming. Wherever there is a carcass, 
There the vultures will gather. In other words, there's going to be all kinds of death and stench. Immediately after the great distress of the days, the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We saw that last week in Revelation 16. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the heaven to the other. In other words, if you're a motorcycle dude, kick stands up, here we come. You see, the picture here is not a defeated bride. It's not a persecuted bride. It's not a martyred group. It's not a defenseless group, but a redeemed, perfected group of soldiers seeking some honking revenge on the enemy. Yes, amen, hallelujah. (laughs) Look at Revelation chapter 19. Then John gives this picture, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great what of God. Now, remember, we had the wedding supper. Now it's called a supper of God. I wonder what the difference is. Well, this is a supper you don't want to be part of. You want to be part of the other supper, and I'll explain in a minute. Verse 18, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses, and the mighty of horses and of the riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. So there's this supper that takes place. The beasts and the kings are gathered together. And we know that this supper is birds gorging on the dead. Now, I've said this before and when I walk through this, but make sure you're going to the right supper. You want to go to the wedding supper of the Lamb because it's there that you'll eat. And the wedding supper here, the wedding supper or the supper of God is where you'll be eaten. And the difference is, you know Christ, wedding supper of the Lamb, supper of God, you didn't know Christ. You didn't profess him as your Lord and Savior. Zechariah chapter 14 and verses 1 to 4 give a picture in this moment too where Jesus puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. So there's death, there's destruction. Also, there's this going on. Look at verse 19. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was what? With it, its false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. In other words, those who didn't trust Christ. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning what? The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It's important that you see what's taking place here. Everyone dies. The rest of them is a phrase that means Everybody, everybody. So at that moment in time, at the end of this battle of Armageddon, at the end of this battle, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. But at the end of this, 
At the end of this battle, everyone, everyone is killed, except, except Satan himself. Then ushers in what we call the millennial reign. Let's read it. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Look at verses 1 to 3. Then John said, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the what? That ancient serpent who is the what? Or, and bound him for how long? He threw him into the what? That's the location of demons. And locked and what? Over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until how many years ended? And after that, he must be set free for a short period of time. So we know from this text, the thousand-year millennial reign, eternal state again, we know that Satan is bound. He's chained. We also know it says at the end of this thousand years, he's on the loose. He's loosed. And he thinks he can come back and he can attack and win this war. Now, I want you to wrap your mind around this for a second and, and ask this question. Um, If that's the case, turn to Revelation chapter 20 and look at verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, from the abyss, and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Now, here's two words that if you have any kind of church background, you've heard these words, gog and magog. It's It's like eggnog. You don't forget that word, just... And I haven't. I mean, I can remember sitting and being scared to death going to prophecy conferences as a kid. And he would say, Gog and Magog. And, well, that sounds like eggnog. And so I've remembered it all those years. Just (laughs) Gog are the rulers during this time. Magog are the people during this time. So look again. Satan will be released from prison and will go out to to deceive. Gog, rulers, and Magog, people, And to gather them for what? In number, they are like sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth, surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and what? And the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. We just read that. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Question for you. If, in fact, at this battle of Armageddon, there's no one left, then who are Magog and Gog? If all the evil people are gone and they've been released and sent to hell, basically, to eternity, who are these people? If all that was left were Christians, how would you answer that question, by the way? I mean, it says, numerous as the sand on the seashore. Who, who are those people? Who, is, who, will, 
he gathered to war against? It's not demons, it's Gog, it's rulers, and it's people. The war is against unsaved people. Let me explain to you. How can that happen? During the time of the tribulation, let's talk, or the, the millennial reign, let me give you who comes into the millennial reign. During the time of the millennial reign, right at the beginning of the millennial reign, we who have been in heaven will come down. So you'll have redeemed believers who've been part of the battle of Armageddon. By the way, we have out of this world capability. We're going to talk about those next week. We will be as he is, 1 John 3, 2. When Jesus appeared in the upper room, he just showed up. He walked through the wall. We'll have abilities to go from the new heaven and the new earth. We'll have these redeemed bodies. However, during this millennial reign, there'll be another group of people, tribulation saints, who have somehow, few, who have endured the tribulation, they'll come into the millennial reign in physical bodies, redeemed. You will also have children under the age of accountability who make it in to the millennial reign. Somehow they survive. I don't know how many, but you have children. These are human bodies, human bodies, which are still capable of procreating, having babies. They will have children during this time. And those children will reject, and still many will reject Jesus Christ. So you'll have redeemed, who, who are like the angels, can't marry us out of this world capability. You'll have physical bodies coming in. You'll have children being born who still deny Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that are gathered for this war. It'll be an incredible time. Turn to Isaiah chapter 65. Let me give you a picture of this millennial period. Let me tell you what this is going to look like. Turn to Isaiah chapter 65. And look at verses 17 to 25. So what are we going to do during the millennial time? This thousand years. What happens? Look at Isaiah chapter 65 in verse 17 through 25. Isaiah says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Then Isaiah says this, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it. How much? There won't be any weeping or crying during the millennial reign. Then it says this in verse 20, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. A child who knows Christ from a family. Now they will, but look what it says. Or an old man who does not live out his years, they'll live long lives. Then it says this the one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered what? Accursed. Let me just give you some, some really interesting theology here. During the millennial reign, these bodies, if you don't know Christ, you won't make it to 100 years long. Because it says here, you're a curse. You will die. 
Those that know Christ's physical bodies will live a long period of time. Long period of time. Read on. Then it says this. They will build houses during the millennium and dwell in them. They will plant what? Vineyards and eat their fruits. So by the way, those of you who have contractor skills, I'm part of that group, we're going to be doing some building. Those of you who love gardening and vineyards, and you will be planting beautiful picture that we're living on this earth and we're taking the skills and the tools that we had on planet earth. Those of you who drive bulldozers and heavy equipment, you're going to be busy rebuilding. And then it says this, verse 22, no longer will they build houses and others live in them or people or, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. In other words, you are staying where you're at. My chosen ones will enjoy long the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. Then it says this in verse 24. I find this just fascinating. Before they call, I will what? While they are still speaking, I will what? Here's what that means. This is during this millennial reign, when we're living on this thousand-year time on, on planet Earth, before, in other words, before we cry out that, hey, God, can you help me out with this? Before we think it, before it's off our lips, it says the answer will come. There's this speedy answer to our prayers. There's this sense where Jesus immediately, need help, got it, need help, got it, need help, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Got it. There's this speed and action. It's no longer thwarted and stopped because of the oppressor. There's this sense where Jesus acts Quickly, awesome picture. Look, read on with me. Then it says this in verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. That's during the millennial period. And the lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. Animals will lie down with animals. Immediately after this, John gives us another picture. Look at chapter 20 and verse 11. He says this. Then I saw a great white what? In him, John chapter, or Revelation chapter 20, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was what on it? The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, which is, which represents the grave, the bodies in the grave, great and small, standing before the throne. And what was open? Is it singular or plural? Now look, keep, this is important. Another what was open, which is the book of what? So we got books, another book, which is the book of life, the dead, which represents the grave, those that were buried were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book or books. Then it says this in verse 13. The sea, those that were drowned at sea, people that were cremated and had their ashes, dismembered parts were brought and met the soul. They were standing at this great white throne. Gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, the picture of torment where evil spirits go, that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had what? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
The lake of fire is the second death or the eternal lake. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of what? Was thrown into the lake of fire. This is really important because there's a lot of books that are mentioned here. And I want to try to explain these and why they're so important. First, you have recorded here, plural books. Then you have book, another book called Book of Life. Now, if you're a student of the New Testament, there's also another book, and it's called the what book of life? The Lamb's book of life. So you have the Lamb's book of life. So what are all these books? Are they the same? Well, look what it says here again. In verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. When those who don't know Jesus Christ stand before him, you talk about an accountability partner. How would you like to have Jesus as accountability partner? We do, but in the physical standing in front of you. He has books that everything that these people have ever done on planet earth. They stand before him and you know it says, the books were open. This is your life. And they want to stand there, but Jesus, you know, I, I went to Grace Community Church, but Jesus, I served on a blitz, but Jesus, I married a Christian, but Jesus, I was a bright light, at least I thought I was, but Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus. And he said, depart from me, I never knew you because you, don't, you didn't trust in me as your Lord and Savior. And so these books are every deed, every deed that they've ever done. Imagine what that must be like, not just of one person, but of all the lost people who have ever lived. Then it says this, another book was there called the book of life. Now this book is different. This book is a book that every human being and every child that's been aborted, because that is a human being, every person who's ever lived on planet Earth, when they are born before the foundation of the world, we know this to be true because Jesus knows past, present, and future. Their names are recorded in the book of life. This is just any person who has ever lived. Now, there's another book. This book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And we know that this book only records those who are children of the Lamb of God. So here's what happens. The Bible also tells us this in Revelation chapter 21 and John chapter 21. And also tells us, if you look in, in the New Testament, that there will be names that will be blotted out of the book of life. So, for instance, let's just do letters. A name, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Just say L, M, N, O, and all the names under that. When you decide not to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you die, your name literally is blotted out 
of the book of life. You die. You don't know Christ. You were part of the tribulation and you took the mark of the beast. beast. Your name has been blotted out of the book of life. And so there are these blot marks, literally. I don't know how that happens, but it's easy to do on a whiteboard. Blot them out. And so these names that are left, that are in the book of life, go into the Lamb's book of life. Let me just say it this way. There are many books that you can be part of. You could be in a who's who. You could be in a record book. You could be in someone's journal. This is the book where you want to end up. This is the book. This week, as I was walking through all of this, it hit me because Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says that every deed will not be hidden that we've ever done, will not be hidden from the Lord. And that's the books of these books, the deeds. Then it hit me. If I'm raptured out before the tribulation, and I believe that's the case. And even before that, if I die, suppose I died today. By the way, I'm ready because I know I was, because of Jesus' work on the cross, nothing that I've done and I believed and trusted in him with all of my heart. My next breath is in the presence of Jesus Christ. I believe that with all my heart. And if I were to die today, somewhere in heaven, there's this place that the Lamb's book of life. And I've often wondered, could I go over there? Could I look for the, the attendees of Grace Community Church and see if they're there, if they're there, if they're there, if they're there, if they're there. And even as a parent, I believe with all my heart, best as I know, and my kids will profess to this, that they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's no greater joy in the world for a parent to know that their kids follow hard after Jesus Christ. I'll have the access to go there and say, see James Brown Jr., 1962, and Catherine Brown, Joshua James Brown, Isaiah Jacob Brown, Hannah Catherine. And I can walk through that list. Imagine if you had, were able to go there and see these books, what a moment that would be. And then to see your names. At the end of this, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire with the devil the false priests, false prophet, and the beast. Jesus, you have an amazing plan in store. It's already scripted out, Lord. It befuddles me to think, why wouldn't we trust in you as the Lord and Savior of our lives? I pray, God, in a fresh way, like many did last week, that something would happen in the hearts of people who are holding out. That they would open their hearts and bow before you and trust you before it's too late. And Jesus, I pray that as a result of this incredible plan that you have for us, that you've laid out, and and the next week we get to see what we get to 
do and reap and the blessings of an eternal state of the new heaven and the new earth. I pray, God, that we would tell others that when people bump into us, that we would try to gather as many as we can to join us in eternity with you. Thanks, God, for loving us so much to send Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior when we didn't deserve it, but we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week.